Welcome to the World of Foundational Horror Podcast. I'm Mom, aka Christina, and this is the podcast where I take a tour of classic international horror. On the main pod, Mac and I choose a genre or subgenre of horror and pair an international film with an American one. With these minis, I want to fill in the gaps of my own knowledge and find those foundational films that have influenced and inspired modern horror. The only rules for this project are that the movie has to have been made before the year 2000, and it must not have been made in the U.S. asterisk for this movie. The topic for this mini is Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca from 1940. To help me discuss and dissect this classic is the original friend of the show, Quinn. Welcome, Quinn. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm also from 1940. You are not from 1940. <laughs> so before we get into it, just a couple of disclaimers. One, I know that I, at least, will probably be using language that might not be suitable for all listeners. And for the purposes of this discussion, we are just going to take it for granted that you have some experience with Rebecca, that you've seen the movie or read the book. We will discuss it and spoil it for sure. This movie was directed by Alfred Hitchcock. The screenplay was by Robert E. Sherwood and Joan Harrison. The adaptation was by Philip McDonald and Michael Hogan, based on Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. It stars Joan Fontaine, Laurence Olivier, Judith Anderson, George Sanders, Reginald Denny, Gladys Cooper, and C. Aubrey Smith. The release date was April 12, 1940, and it has a running time of 130 minutes. Yeah, this this goes just a little bit over Mac's sweet spot. Oh, quite a bit over, actually. Quite a bit over, <laughs> but I think he would love it. Okay, so we haven't watched this for Squad. Well, Hose, if you if you don't know what Squad is, it's basically just the name for those times when Matt Quinn and I watch a movie together. We have a watch party in our various locations. Yeah, it started right when the pandemic started. <laughs> We came up with the idea and it was really cool. And I'm sure a lot of other people out there did the same type of thing, but that's that's how our squad was born. Yes. But yes, I think that Mac would, I would really like to hear Mac's take on this actually. I would too. I think, <laughs> I think that, I think we need to make this a squad pick soon. I, I would love to hear his take actually. Now that <laughs> I'm talking about it, yeah. So the brief plot synopsis from IMDb says, a self-conscious woman juggles adjusting to her new role as an aristocrat's wife and avoiding being intimidated by his first wife's spectral presence. (laughs) That's pretty good, huh? I guess. I mean, if you're going to have a one sentence plot summary, yeah, I think I think they did a nice job doesn't say anything about uh, Mrs. Danvers, but, and is he an aristocrat? I guess so. Yes. Oh, yes. Manderley's been around forever. That's a shame we can never go back to Manderley. (laughs) (laughs) Although sometimes I see it in the tree-framed archway of my (coughs) No. Okay. I can't do any impersonations from this movie don't let me do it don't 
entertain any of them. Stop me if I try to. You know where I go. But yeah, we can never go back to Manderley. So I watched it on YouTube. What about you, Quinn? Also watched it on YouTube. So let me just ask, what is your history with this film? I think it's my first Hitchcock I ever saw. And I know that my grandmother had the book, Rebecca. And while it wasn't talked about a lot and it wasn't something that, you know, is like a family favorite, I, um, my mom got the book, I found the book and it was just like an interesting looking book because it's, it's a very old edition and it just looks cool. And so I started flipping through it and I believe I then found out that there was a film version of it and watched it. Although I think like at that time I was getting into older films. So, but I do think it was the first Hitchcock that I ever watched. Cause I remember then watching his next one, which is suspicion, which is also got Joan Fontaine in it, but Cary Grant too. And we know my history with Cary Grant. <laughs> um, so I devoured that one, but yeah, it was, I think it was my first one. I can, I, I tried to sort of trace back the roots and everything. And I can say with like 95% confidence that this was my first Hitchcock. Do you remember how old you were, Quinn, when you saw this movie? No, I don't. I think I was quite young though, or not quite young. I was probably 12 or 13. Oh, okay. I think that's a good time to see it actually. Yeah. And I was, I was enamored with this because this one, I think, I think he does this a lot in his films, but this one in particular and Vertigo. And again, two of the reasons that I love these two films looking back, but they both gave me the same first experience. And that was like, I felt incredibly mesmerized by, you know, the setting that he had put me in and all the details and all of the dialogue and the characterization and the cinematography. And I was thinking we were going in one direction and then we just like forked off and went in a completely different direction that I hadn't planned on going down on, you know, hadn't planned on visiting, had no idea that's where we were going. And I think during the experience of watching both Vertigo and Rebecca the first time, I think I was like, what? Wait, hey, hang on a second. No, wait, huh? I think it's actually part of that reason that I love it so much because I respect, I respect it. Because if you take me down a road and then you take me somewhere else, and then I actually still love that later when looking back, I mean, that's a great deal, I think, to give your audience and to trust your audience in that because that's a, that's risky. He, I mean, he does this a lot with a lot of different films. Of course he does it in Psycho with Janet Lee and killing mm-hmm. her off in the beginning, but he does a lot of things that I think that typically could really make audiences just hate him and not be interested in him, but it works because he does so well to develop that original atmosphere. And then I think does just as good of a job you know, with the second half of the movie and putting you back in a different place where you already like understand where you came from very well. But this movie, I think, is does a couple of turns, you know, like in the beginning, it's sort of a, um, a romance, I guess. And then it turns into this horror movie, <laughs> uh, ends up as a horror movie too. But then we also have a murder trial. 
So it's really, yeah, you get a lot of bang for your buck with this movie. So it's got a lot of different genre shifts. Yeah. And I think, I think what I, I think what I wanted it to be when I first watched it and was experiencing it was just a pure, beautiful, gothic ghost story. I mean, it is a little bit of that. And you can argue that it still really is that. But I think he tries to push you down that road. I was thinking for myself, I have actually no memory at all of when I first watched this movie. But I'm imagining it was in high school. Um, Either my English teacher or stepmother introduced me to it. Or maybe my friend who was just that kooky friend that we all have. Maybe you were that kooky friend was kind of into older stuff. So she might've been the one, but uh, same. I loved it. I didn't really know anything about it at all, but I, I loved it and I still love it. Yeah. I, it really is. It's an experience and it's just beautiful. And I think it just does not stop mesmerizing me and you. It sounds like. Of course it doesn't hurt that George Sanders shows up and has two, Great scenes where he's especially slimy. I just love him. What IMDb leaves out is all of the beautiful details. I mean, we could just kind of go from the beginning and leave out some things and talk about what we want to talk about, what we're most into. Um, So I know that Rebecca is such a beloved um, British tale, and I think it's been done a few different times on on television, uh, like BBC productions, things like that. And of course we have this one. And then there was recently a Netflix version as well. I think a couple of years ago. In the beginning, we we meet this young woman who is working for this older woman who is pretty well-to-do. And she later tells Maxim that she is a paid companion. Yes. (laughs) That sounds cool. (laughs) But this woman is very stuffy, very overbearing, very like um, rude in many ways. And the woman working for her, who we never, she's, you know, she's protagonist of the film and we never actually know her name. That never is revealed. And I think that's important too. And we can talk about that too. But she couldn't be any more different from the woman that she's working for. And Mm -hmm. she comes upon a man who looks pretty troubled, who's sort of staring off into the ocean, looking like he's going to take a leap. And she interrupts him and that starts this sort of love affair. And it is pretty um, intended, I guess, that he's quite a bit older. She's younger. He kind of treats her like a child in many ways and calls her a child, but they get on really well and they seem to enjoy each other's company. And her employer gets sick, so they have more time to play tennis and go to lunch and things like that. And they end up falling for each other <laughs> and decide that she's supposed to leave. And instead, to save her from leaving, he says, Well, marry me. And right. <laughs> yeah, so I think in the book she's 21. And I'm I don't. I'm just going to imagine that he's 40. I think, you know, just old enough to be her dad. And the actors themselves were only 10 years apart, 23 and 33. But, you know, they put some white, some gray and Larry's hair sort of aged him up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and 
Kenny is sort of, he just sort of has this air of like, I don't know, a stuffy, stuffy middle-aged man. <laughs> and he says to her, just like, never, what does he say? Like, never wear black velvet and pearls, pearls and <laughs> never get old. Yeah. But yeah, she's she's really taken with him and he does save her. I think in a lot of ways from this life of, of hanging out with um <laughs> what's her name? Is it Mrs. Van Buren? I kept wanting to Van, name her. Van Hopper. Van Hopper. That's right. And I, I didn't see the remake, but you told me that that Anne Dowd plays this role. And I would I may just look up those scenes. Um <laughs> that's pretty good. I, I can I can imagine she did very well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I did get probably like midway through the remake and thought better to not have a new vision of Rebecca. So, um, but yeah, she did. It has been a couple of years, but absolutely. So then we see them sort of, I mean, there's a little bit about them getting married and it's all very sweet and, and charming. And then when he takes her home, <laughs> She did not know what Manderly was, I think, because she's absolutely stunned and she looks pretty scared. <laughs> yeah. And in that beginning part, too, we do hear Mrs. Van Hopper mention things like, oh, everyone knows the story of Rebecca, <laughs> you know, and then later when she finds out that they are going to get married. Um, and he goes out of the room, she says something to her, like, you're never, he'll never be, you'll never be, you know, in charge of Manderley. You'll never be, you know, head of Manderley. And it's just like this big, she doesn't know anything about him. She doesn't know anything about the estate. She doesn't know anything about his dead wife, but all of these things are alluded to by Mrs. Van Hopper. So we're kind of like getting like little echoes of this. And then, yeah, we see them pulling into the estate and it's raining and she gets inside and she sort of looks like this <laughs> wet mouse. Yeah. <laughs> and she meets the staff of, of the household. And of course, that's when she meets Mrs. Danvers, um, who was, we find out, Rebecca's old assistant, maid, helper. So she was... I don't know if she was hired by Rebecca and she had worked for Rebecca before or if she was hired when Rebecca and Max met and I don't know, but she's been kept on ever since Rebecca and even post Rebecca. Well, Rebecca hasn't been dead that long, right? Yeah. 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 So, and she's very, I think severe is probably <laughs> the, a good way to put it. She's got her hair pulled very tightly back. She wears all black. She never smiles. And I think I read in the trivia that she was instructed not to blink. So. <laughs> yeah. And it's also pretty out there in trivia that um, you just don't ever see her feet. So it looks like she's um, floating everywhere she goes. Yeah, in the beginning, too, when she's kind of showing her around the home, she kind of just herds her. She just follows behind her and kind of like, she just reminds me of, you know, like a herding dog that's like 
now you'll come in here. Now this is what I want you to see. And I want you to know this. And always in that tour and in their early react, you know, early interactions and throughout all of their interactions, um, Mrs. Danvers mentions what Rebecca did and what Rebecca would do in this circumstance and how Rebecca reacted and how smart Rebecca was and where Rebecca's underwear go, and, you know, everything. And how sheer her nighty that's still laying on the bed is. That was odd to me. <laughs> you can see my hand. Yeah, Danvers really kind of comes alive in that scene where she's giving her a tour of Rebecca's bedroom. There's also like there are R's everywhere, like everything's like embroidered or, you know, her monogram is everywhere that the second Mrs. DeWinter looks. And so there's just a constant reminder that she is not Rebecca. Yeah. Now, those types of things seem to be things that would have been taken out of the house, (laughs) but they have not been taken out of the house. They are everywhere. Well, and I think that's a comfort to Mrs. Danvers, who loved Rebecca, you know, in, in maybe worshipped her in a certain way. I mean, the way she talks about her is with such reverence. And it, it's a little creepy. But I, I imagine she did all of that. Either if they were put away, she brought them back out. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) I wonder, too, I could see her for the past year, like bringing in different servants of the home, giving them tours, Mm -hmm. you know, like this is where Rebecca's underwear are placed. They were made by a nun at the convent. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. And then I guess we could just get into it. I mean, there's been suggestion that, you know, Danvers is lesbian and that her feelings toward Rebecca were, were not chaste. Um, what's your take on that? Well, it is something that I hadn't thought about before, but after reading a little bit about it, I see it. And I also think about some of Things that she said, I mean, of course, some of the things that she says to the second Mrs. DeWinter, but also like, I would wait for her to come home, (laughs) you know, and I just, some Mm -hmm. of it is, is very intimate. And I know that, you know, I I don't know. I, I think there's absolute love there. Not sure exactly what it is, but for sure. I think it was a complicated love, but I, I never saw the lesbian stuff until, like you, I started looking into the story a little more. To me, it seems like, one, like I said, she's worshipping this woman and just really sort of enamored of everything that she does, but also like a mother, like she's taking care of her. And Rebecca drank a lot. And I'm so I'm sure, you know, she came home needing help, you know, washing off her makeup and getting into bed and all that kind of stuff. Or maybe Danvers, you know, held her hair when she was vomiting in the toilet or something. I mean, I feel like Rebecca was such a wild person 
you know, that she needed a little, a little help. And Danvers was there to provide that for her. And maybe, you know, she had a lesbian crush on her. I don't think they were lovers. I don't think so either. But I, I think that, I think that, so what we know about Rebecca is just like, we don't really know who Rebecca was. The only real picture of Rebecca that we get are glimpses from different people. And then what Mrs. Danvers thought of her and what Max Maxim thought of her. Yes. And we know from him that she was somebody who sort of fooled him into this relationship and then was like, Hey, I just wanted to do this so I could get the estate. And now you're going to have to live with it because you're not going to divorce me. You're not going to divorce anyone. And I'll make this place into, you know, the best Manderlay it can be, but you got to stay with me. And that's how it is. And then if it's, if it is that version, then we can believe a lot of the other things too. And we would also believe that maybe like Mrs. Danvers bond with Rebecca would intensify because she's probably covering up for her a lot. And she knows that Rebecca is not truly happy in this relationship with Maxim So she's going out to find true happiness. And Mrs. Danvers probably does love her so much that she doesn't want her, she wants her to be happy and she knows she's not getting it there. And so she's got to cover up and cover up and like go deep in with her. And I think when you combine that sort of, that type of thing in a relationship, it becomes very bonded. Yeah. Okay, I think that's all really right. That makes a whole lot of sense to me. I mean, the fact that I don't know, I mean, I guess in the beginning, Rebecca's affair with um, her cousin was maybe kept a secret. But after a while, I mean, Rebecca had an apartment in town. And um, it's my understanding that that was there so she could have her liaisons away from from Manderley. But then Maxim tells us that after a while she got, she got sloppy. That's not the word he uses, but, and reckless or careless or something. And she's, she, you know, she fucked George Sanders in that little, that little house there, the beach house. That's like apart from the estate, but still on the property. So that's outrageous. Yeah. And Mr. DeWinter's getting cuckolded and yeah, Rebecca's yeah, really done a number on him and and tricked him. But they're so but they're both so concerned with their reputation in society that they have to stay married, apparently. Um <laughs> and there's no way out. Maxim except to do something drastic right so um I think it's pretty I think it's pretty known that in the book does kill her but all of the other stuff is also true that is revealed in the film so again this is going off the idea that everyone who's listening has a real good idea of you know the deep dark plot holes and summary and whatever so spoilers abound but in the film and in the book there is this this notion that she is going to die, but he doesn't know that in the book or in the film until the end. In the film version, though, she 
she's making a huge, you know, she's getting very excited and heated in a fight with him and, and she falls, but she is, we are told later by the doctor that at that time she was just like ready to be in like hospice care at that point um, from cancer. So, or he said she would be receiving morphia soon, you know? So it's not, I mean, when you get to the end of the film, it's not unbelievable that she would have tripped and had some blow, deadly blow because Maxim says, you know, I, I just stared off. And when I like kind of made connection again, I looked down at her and she was not breathing. And so in this version, you know, he, he takes the boat, he puts her in the, the bottom of the boat, shuts the door, drowns boat. And then somebody, then there's a body that comes up. That's not her. It's like a different body of a woman. And he says, Oh, that's her. That's her for sure. And then everybody is like, she died in the sea. <laughs> so I don't know if I've, I don't know. I no, don't that's, know. that's really good. Yeah. And then, and it really does the way you put it. I mean, it really does point out that, you know, there are a lot of holes here that you just have to, not just the holes in the hole, but there are holes in the plot that you just have to sort of go with if you're going to enjoy this film and, you know, just don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> like she was dying. She was also a fucking monster and he wanted her to be dead is somehow he's somewhat guilty for making that happen in the book he's completely guilty but in the movie eh, you know i mean um we know that he intentionally sank the boat but i don't i don't know how he gets away with it i guess it's that it's that she had cancer and then and the doctor concludes that she she killed herself. Yeah, because before that, there's no reason that anyone can come up with as to why she would have even entertained the possibility of suicide. Because as far as Favell knows at that point that she's pregnant. With his baby. Well, Right. And then she says that, or Maxim says that she tells him that, you know, and she says, you're going to, there's going to be an heir to Manderley, but it's not going to be yours. And so of course that's, that's prodding him even further into anger. But you know what, this time, this, interestingly enough, and I don't know if it was just like my second watch recently for this, but part of me was like, what if Rebecca is not bad? What if her, what if he is like, just what if they had this relationship and they realized that they weren't for each other, but for whatever reason, different reasons for each of them realized they couldn't get out of it via divorce. And then that just like plagued them with like sadness, but also like all this confrontation and hostility and it grew and grew and grew and they were just so unhappy and like I don't know because nobody else describes her as being a horrible person you know they say she was like larger than life she was beautiful things like that but they don't say she was like the incarnate of evil like we get from Maxim yeah but George Sanders with his sliminess, 
when he when he introduced when he has uh, Danny introduce him to the second Mrs. De Winter, he's like, oh, you know, she didn't tell you that I was Rebecca's favorite cousin, and I I he's so he's such a and then he tries to blackmail Maxim later. So the fact yeah. that she was having an affair with this guy, I don't think speaks highly of her character and um maxim is like incredibly sad in the beginning of of the film and so i i like that take that you have that like the marriage left um i don't know like scars on his psyche i don't think it's just the guilt he feels i think also when he thinks about the marriage it makes him very sad yeah, and and I do. I think what he sees in the second Mrs. De Winter is a fresh start, but he also sees the innocence of her and the idea that he has a dark history. And in his head, he's he's part of this murder, you know, if whichever version you're dealing with. So he has this as well, and he doesn't feel he feels like he can't get past that. So I do, I feel like I agree with that, what you just said. But yeah, I think he sees her as this fresh start and this innocent new life, this like mm-hmm. young, this young woman who is going to breathe life into his, you know, into him. And, and I think that he likes that she's young and he likes that she's inexperienced and he doesn't, he loves that he doesn't, she's not into trends or anything or whatever. And, you know, he's com- she's completely different than Rebecca, we learn. And she is a pure soul. So I guess if we see her as being, everyone does point out how different she is than Rebecca, then we do have to believe that everyone did feel that way about Rebecca. But um, hey, Quinn, do you know any trivia about Rebecca? Um, yes, I do. Let me go through a little bit with you. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. Well, despite scouring most of America, New England in particular, producer David Oselznik was unable to find a suitable location to represent Manderley, so he had to resort to a miniature instead. That's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. I'm not sure why they didn't. I mean, I don't know why this wasn't shot overseas. This was his first um, North American movie. And yeah, it is very, very well known that they did not get along and they were kind of trouble for each other, Selznick and Hitchcock. Oh, yeah. I don't know where I saw it, but some little documentary on their relationship. And I guess Selznick would want to come to the to the set and like, you know, see what was going on, where his money was being spent. And Hitchcock would just like shut everything down like he didn't want, which I get. I actually get that, you know, because he didn't want anybody like, you know, looking over his shoulder or like trying to make comments about how they think the vision should be realized. I mean, as the director, he felt like what he was doing was correct and he didn't want to have it criticized. Yeah. I mean, if you if you're gonna go up against Hitchcock, like, I don't know, just yeah, he's probably right. 
if it's if it's a movie he's talking about. You know? <laughs> you know, if it's like yeah, if it's like marriage counseling, maybe you don't want to go to Alfred Hitchcock for advice. But yeah. movie making, yeah, I think yeah. Like, he knew he knew his stuff. Yeah, he knew his stuff, and yeah, I mean, this turned out to be just amazing, of course. Yeah, and I think that there's some. I don't know if I read this in the IMDb trivia too that I don't, I didn't pull it over. I know that he did some in-camera editing so that Selznick wouldn't see what he was doing and wouldn't get hold of like the dailies. They weren't as available to him, and I did see something where he was like, "I don't think this is going to be good," and asked his wife to to take a look, and she was like, "It's so good." So he kind of laid off. Here's another piece of trivia. Sir Alfred Hitchcock and cinematographer George Barnes used a technique known as deep focus photography. This is one of the few movies where that technique, where where it was used before Citizen Kane. So Hitchcock had also used it in When Boys Leave Home. Um, did you notice deep focus in this? I know that's your thing. You love it. Yeah. Um, I, I watched this like right around the same time that I rewatched the haunting and whoa is there deep focus on that but that's a much later movie but yes i did i did notice the deep focus i think there might have been like split diopters in the haunting what year was the haunting 63 oh yeah okay yeah because i know 40s it's tough to do sir alfred hitchcock's perfectionism slow production from the start within two weeks the production was already five days behind schedule yeah, and I I imagine there's probably like seemingly no big trivia on his relationship with Joan Fontaine because they did work together again right after this. Don't think I, he worked with Laurence Olivier. I don't think that Laurence Olivier was very warm to Joan because he wanted his wife Vivian Lee to play the part of the second Mrs. De Winter. You and I talked about this before, like in terms of casting, like Joan Fontaine was just, God, she's amazing in this just because this is her movie, but like she carries it off because of who she is. And I just don't know if Vivian Lee can, can do it. Yeah. She might've been able to pull off the first Mrs. DeWinter. Oh but, yeah. But yeah, I, I, and I know that Olivia de Havilland also wanted the role um, Joan's sister, but I think it went to the right person. Yeah, I did too. Actually, I think now that you say that, I almost think I do picture Vivian Lee as Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, I, I, like her. You know, yeah, yeah. I could. Tell. Well, I, I picture Jessica Rabbit, but like in human form. <laughs> oh, nice. Mm, yeah. yeah. So the trivia in terms of where the Hitchcock cameo is for this one, um, he's walking past a phone booth just after Jack Favelle makes a call in the final part of the movie. There are photos showing Hitchcock standing beside the phone booth looking at Mr. Saunders. Actually, the scene isn't played that way. And you have to be quick spotting Hitchcock quickly passing by in the background while Sanders is discussing a parking matter with the policeman with Saunders having only been seen in the close-up while talking on the phone. So this is something I think about a lot and I like to know where it is. And I don't know how I didn't think about it when watching it just three times in the past, like two weeks, but I did not think about it. 
but I just watched that scene yesterday and didn't even pick it up. And I think that speaks volumes of where Quinn's brain is these days. But also, I know that Hitchcock's cameos, he'll put himself in the beginning if it's um, a particularly twisty film. And I kind of think this one is a twisty film. Oh, it's, it's twisty. Yeah, I'm actually, but I mean, this was kind of early on in his career. So it's actually surprising that it's so late in the film. But, you know, maybe he was just like working out his own guidelines of his cameos. <laughs> yeah, I mean, by the time we get to Psycho, you know, it's definitely, uh, you know, you're able to spot him. But I looked too, and I, I didn't see him. I don't know if you have to go like freeze frame it or something, but it's not obvious anyway. Yeah. And the later ones are very, very obvious. So I think he got more and more into it and probably developed a lot more guidelines around where he would be and how much of himself he would show and things like that. Are you curious to know what briefly Letterboxd has to say about it? Oh, yes. This is my favorite part of the show. I'm so curious. It is, Quinn? Yes, I love it. It's so funny. I get so mad. Well, we'll start with the five-star reviews. And Tim from Dismembering Horror um, sort of gave me this idea to, to cite what the favorites of these reviewers were yeah. ahead of looking at the review. So for Abby... Her favorite movies are A Streetcar Named Desire, 10 Things I Hate About You, Lady Bird, and Emma. She gave it five stars. Ah, why is it taking me so long to watch this? Recently read the book and became obsessed. The casting is perfect, and it's got everything you need in a story. Tragedy, mad women, gothic themes, and cocker spaniels. <laughs> Just that. <laughs> Alexander Rager whose favorites are Mulholland Drive, Magnolia, Rear Window, and Take Shelter. Gave it five stars. Joan Fontaine is absolutely stunning throughout, especially during the middle hour of runtime when she more or less carries the film on her shoulders. But it's the snarling undercurrent of malice produced by George Saunders as Jack Favell and Judith Anderson as Ms. Danvers that truly elevates the shadowy twists and turns of what is undeniably one of the greatest films ever made. Uh, you know, that makes me think about something. What's that? I feel like sometimes when we've done episodes together with Mac, there's been like weird duos that were like, we want to see more of this. <laughs> and we're doing squad, but how cool would it be? <laughs> see, like, you know, like the year in between with, with Danvers and Favel, just, I mean, I, it's, I'm sure they didn't see each other very often, but I like to imagine a world in which like, <laughs> there's devious plans um, erupting everywhere around Manderley. Oh yeah. I really, I really hope so. <laughs> I'm just always happy when that dude shows up. Although I did don't, if you like him as an actor, well, don't do any research into the actor's personal life. You will be disappointed. Oh, no. Aaron, whose favorites are La Notte, Double Indemnity, Carol, and Dead's Dead Poets Society, gave it five stars. Alternate title, Mrs. Danvers' Toxic Lesbian Goth Arson Life Arc. <laughs> <laughs> That's another way of looking at it. Yeah. But not as catchy of a title. No, it's not snap. It doesn't roll off the tongue. But Sima, 
whose favorites are Rebecca, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf's secret ceremony and the fuzzy pink nightgown, gave it five stars. If my future GF wouldn't burn down Manderly for me, I don't want her. <laughs> I get it. I know. I know. I think, I, I don't know. I think in the very recent past, I mentioned to you that we all deserve a Mrs. Danvers. Somebody who's completely obsessed with us. Yeah, I mean, right. Just a little bit, but yeah. Well, not everybody loved this film. Can you believe it, Quinn? No, I can't. Well, Amy Jammy, whose favorite films were only three listed, Surf's Up, Lego Batman, and Zodiac, <laughs> gave it a half star. Just because it's old doesn't mean it's good. Clown face emoji. Oh, honey, no. <laughs> oh, honey. What a weird three movies. That I know. You throw Zodiac in there and I don't know what to think. I know. I respect Zodiac a lot. Uh, and I, I kind of respect the Lego movie. I don't know. Oh, okay. Well, I, I actually can't speak to that one at all. But Katie Rose B, whose favorites are Our Father, Thor, Love and Thunder, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, and Perfect Bid, the contestant who knew too much, gave it one and a half stars. Gay people are evil, apparently. Wow, Katie Roseby. What a what a thing to take from this. <laughs> yeah. Uh Brady Cakes, whose favorite movies are The Hangover, Jojo Rabbit, Jerry Maguire, and Pulp Fiction. Again, that is quite a mixture. Give oh it one God. star. Pretty bad movie, but mostly just because it was so old. I only had to watch it for class. The character development of the main protagonist is garbage. There is absolutely no growth. Ah, uh, Brady Cakes. Oh, ah, uh, but mostly it's just- not Brady Cakes. I'm sorry, it's Brady Cates. Brady Cates or Brady Kate S. But in any case, whoever you are, you're wrong. Yeah, I mean. I'm glad that someone's making you watch this for class, but if you say, like, I, I don't know, if you're like, this is bad, mostly because it's old, you know, I mean, eh, I don't know, uh, whatever, I, I can't, I can't Brady Kate's. But I, I do think that she does grow quite a lot, and we... <laughs> the the twist that I was referring to, I think, is one of the best moments of the film where maxim says oh you thought i loved her i hated her and then she just keeps repeating that you hated her you hated her like she's so happy that yeah. you know she's been wrong this whole time about how he felt about her yeah and i mean we didn't really talk we haven't talked much about you know who she is and i don't know <laughs> She just keeps getting like blow, blow, like hit down, you know, by everyone in there from the memory of Rebecca that it makes her, makes her even more and more sort of like go into her shell and become this kind of like, you know, shadow of a person. And so after this whole conversation where he reveals everything, 
you know, and, and believes that she will hate him for it. Um, she, it just kind of like solidifies it in, in, in herself, you know, and gives her, I guess that comp some <laughs> amount of confidence, but her whole demeanor absolutely changes. And she's like, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to take care of that, you know, and she's, a, she's a different person. Um, and it does, you can see it, her, her little by little coming alive even before that, you know, she does tell Mrs. Danvers at one point, get rid of all this shit and don't yes. ask me why and do it now, you know, but then Mrs. Danvers really like one up her with <laughs> implanting the idea of this amazing Halloween costume that we come to find out is what Rebecca wore the year before. And it obviously pisses everyone off. And then that's when Mrs. Danvers herds her up to the bedroom again and sort of is urging her to, <laughs> to beckon to the sea, <laughs> you know? Yeah, just jump to your death. Wouldn't it be so much easier? Let me open the window and let <laughs> It sounds crazy if you, if you are just listening to the podcast with no context, like what? But it makes sense in the, it, it, at this point for her character because she's, She's completely, she feels like she does everything wrong and nobody likes her. And Maxim is, whenever he looks at her, he thinks, oh, well, she's not Rebecca. And he does, but she thinks that he's looking at her saying she's not Rebecca in a disparaging way. He's actually very relieved and thrilled that she's not Rebecca. But it makes sense that. Danvers would make this move at this moment yeah it does I mean you can see it just she's not planning to do that either like you can see it in her face I love Danvers so much you can see it she that was not her plan but all of a sudden she looks out and she's like oh hey I got an idea plan <laughs> it. and it is like almost gonna be pulled off like she is moving closer to the window and that is when there is all this ruckus outside and fireworks alerting people to um this boat and that's yes. when the evidence you know comes out that this was Rebecca's boat and Rebecca's body is on the boat so then they need to go and figure out why in the end when everything is solved after going you know to Rebecca's old doctor and confirming that she had cancer. And so they just dropped the whole inquest. <laughs> yeah. and, um, you know, the second Mrs. DeWinder has already headed back to Manderley and she was going to wait for Maxim to, you know, hear the news of, of what they found out. And when he gets home, he thinks that it's, he's like, what time is it? It can't be morning, but I see this, I see morning coming, you know, the morning light coming in, but it can't be morning. And, Manderley's on fire. And of course, that is what some of our letterbox reviewers referred to. <laughs> um, and Mrs. Danvers has just had it. She can't exist in a world in which, um, at this point, in which she can't manipulate the second Mrs. De Winter, and in which, you know, this is a world where Maxim isn't found guilty either. So the two can live there for the rest of their lives. And she's obviously not going to be able to stand that. So she burns the place down. <laughs> and she, and she remains in the house so that she also dies with the house. Yeah. And 
I'm, you know, I think I haven't, you know, full disclosure, I haven't read the novel, but I feel like the horror of the novel is so much deeper because, but it's not because of, of Danvers or that the ghost of Rebecca is, is haunting the mansion. It's that to me, it's that the second Mrs. De Winter <laughs> accepts Maxim knowing that he straight up murdered his first wife. But but he loves her. <laughs> no, I, I know. I know. It's it's a good point. And I, I do like the way it's portrayed in this movie where when he's on trial and there, he he starts to lose his temper on the stand, um, she faints. She quote unquote faints and draws attention away from him. So she definitely is is pulling out all her wiles, you know, for the sake of 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 their union. Yeah, I mean, I I think at that point, whatever happens, she's she's in it, and she's just happy that you know that he doesn't remember Rebecca fondly, but I think she'd do whatever. I think she, I think she would probably murder for him at that point too. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, because what she does in the courtroom, I mean, that is interfering with the court of law. (laughs) Yes. I mean, yeah, it is totally. I don't know. Well, I mean, based on what she knows, I mean, especially in the novel, she does break the law by not revealing, you know, yeah. I mean, and, and I said sort of off the cuff the other day that if you murdered somebody, then that would, that would sort of signal the end of our friendship. But, you know, I've been thinking about it since then. And I'm not sure. Yeah, it is not a deal breaker for me. I know. So I think we like start, but I think we started on like opposite ends of the spectrum where I, I was kind of like, well, I don't know if you've moved at all on your side of the spectrum, but I mean, I was definitely like, like, I love you, but I can't, I can't be friends with you if you murder somebody like murder. I mean, murder, like, like first degree murder, like you have a plan and you carry out your plan. But then we also just watched Bad Sisters, and I'm like, hmm. (laughs) So I won't say anything more about that show, but I think that all the Wohos would enjoy it a lot. Yeah, just to piggyback off that, it's probably the best show I have seen this year. I just think it's so, so well done. It's also 10 episodes, which is a lot of episodes, and usually 10 episodes is way too many if it's just a single, you know, story or like not a series but oh my gosh it was so beautifully done um but yeah yeah it is interesting like the ethical implications and I think from from what I know and I I know I haven't read everything that Daphne Demore has done but um she kind of loves that gray area too mm-hmm. um and I love that about her as well I mean stuff isn't that easy uh you know, to say yes or no. I don't know. I mean, I was serious when I said it wasn't a deal breaker and I don't know that that makes me sound like a great person, but um, yeah, I don't know. I, 
I mean, I would like to think that even because I've had murder in my heart before, you know, don't get me wrong. Um, In fact, the therapist asked me one time, do you think you're in danger? You know, do you think you would you really would kill this person? And I said, if I had a loaded gun in my hand at this moment and that person was right in front of me, I would kill that person. And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah." But I mean, he wanted to know, am I going to go and get a gun and load it and, you know, do all that? And I was like, oh, oh, no. I would never do that. (laughs) But you know what I'm saying? So I have had murder in my heart before. I'm not saying that I'm above that or something like that, but I would like to think that even if I felt those intense emotions, I would try to find, try to find another way to deal with them. But after watching that show with you, I, and, and enjoying, I'm not saying anything about the show, just watch it but enjoying it you know every step of the way that sort of made me think that maybe there is some gray area when it comes to murder (laughs) yeah I mean don't don't like don't submit this as evidence for either one of us oh shoot I didn't think about that (laughs) um but you know I also don't think that I don't think that it was premeditated in any case, with Maxim and Rebecca, I, I mean, I know that yeah. if, if I ever saw Favel here, I would kill him. And he expects to see Favel there when he goes down there, but just sees Rebecca. But I don't think that he ever, like, imagined that he would end it by killing her. But she really, from what he said, she she pushed him into a sort of a very vulnerable state where he was no longer relying on his morals and ethics, you know, at least in the book. But yeah. also, I mean, that's from his point of view. And he really is a hothead. I mean, he flies yeah. off the handle numerous times in the movie. Yeah. So I I don't know how reliable he is. Right. So that opens up a whole other kettle of fish. Yeah, you can open a kettle. Sure. Um, so who knows? I know. It's interesting. But the second Mrs. DeWinter doesn't care. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, oh my God, what's gonna happen to Ben? <laughs> I don't know. Jasper and Jasper. Well, oh, Jasper's Jasper. fine. You know, she's she Jasper. She does. Yeah, because Jasper was sleeping on, or she was sleeping. Jasper woke up and saw old Danny looking devious with a candle, and so the second Mrs. De Winter, when you see her outside, she's got jasper on a leash um, oh okay but we don't know what will happen to ben no we don't uh <laughs> not the asylum for him yeah well i i mean yeah i'm not he doesn't have a whole lot of tools at his disposal and now that now that manderley's gone i'm not sure not sure what's going to happen to ben and if the fire caught on to the beach house all of his shells would be gone as well <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I think it's definitely to the asylum for him. Oh dear. But I actually think that the second Mrs. De Winter has a real thing for Ben and loves him and would do whatever she could to protect him. You could be right. Um <laughs> I I'm not sure, but maybe we should wrap up our discussion of Rebecca. 
Miss Quinn, do you have do you have any parting shots? Um, no, not necessarily. I think we covered a lot, although not all of it, but we covered a lot. I will say that when I think of this movie, the first thing I think of is Danvers sort of floating around. Mm. Um, so that has that I think is something that he did so well to build her on screen um, and leave such such a lasting impression. And I think she is one of my favorite movie villains. And I also think she's probably quite misunderstood. Oh, um, yeah. As, sure. as the great villains are. So I'd add her to the list. But um, no, I just thanks for doing this. This is, gosh, this is one of my most beloved films. And this was so much fun to talk about with you. I agree that it's fun to talk about it with me. Yay! <laughs> You're fun! I'm just kidding, of course. I love talking movies with you, Quinn. We should do it again. Yes, we should totally do it again. Um, and soon. Well, Hose, thanks for tuning into this mini. I am really having fun with this series, and I hope you are too. Coming up on the main show, it's Max' pick of genre, and he has chosen, quote, early creature features with interesting application of effects, his words. <laughs> we will be looking at Yokai 100 Monsters from Japan and The Creeping Flesh from the UK. I also have another foundational ep in the works on The Haunting and... We'd love it if you got in touch and let me know how you feel about this series. And if you have any suggestions for these minis or the main show, remember, we love you and don't go into the basement.